Glory to the labor comrades and welcome to the cabinets of fever dreams. Tonight, the first chapter of Journals from the Institute. This novella was originally released December of 2021 and is read to you tonight by yours truly with musical backing by the dark side of music and Miu. This tale belongs to the United People's Institute of Science series. If you'd like to hear more about the Institute, make sure to check out the past few episodes and tune in for the future chapters of Journals from the Institute. New episodes come out every Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday. With all that said, prepare your documents. We are heading to a darker time. November 5th, 1987. The coffee here tastes like gutter water, and I caught a nasty breed of bedbugs on the train. But I have arrived. Tomorrow is my first day at the Institute. I have never been an organized man, and the excitement of a sudden move did not help. There is a variety of objects that I have forgotten to pack, one of them being my old journal. The terms of employment at the Institute forbid the keeping of any unauthorized written record, but that ban surely doesn't extend to private literature. I have no intention of ever publishing anything in this journal. My only aim is self-reflection so that I can wholeheartedly commit the rest of my mind to the research I have been summoned for. I have few illusions about privacy in my line of work. My luggage and body were thoroughly searched on arrival, and surely the Institute has spooks that will search through my room on a regular basis. But I think I found a spot that even the most curious of KGB agents wouldn't stumble upon. Here's to hoping that my hypothesis about the intelligence of the Institute's muscle are correct. There isn't much to write about the initial impression of the locale. I may have spent three days on a train to get here, but all the places under Union's sphere of influence are the same. Cement, factories, and an underlying sense of dread. The people here just use a harder form of liquor to cope with the reality than back home. When I arrived at the hotel, I saw one of my future co-workers in the lobby. The man had dropped a couple of kilos and his hair had turned gray, but I recognized him immediately. Dr. Markarov. Romanian biologist specializing in tissue regeneration. I had met him a couple years prior at a conference. Friendly fellow, with a great sense of humor. The man that sat in the lobby of the Rusalka tonight, however, didn't seem to be in the mood for any jokes. As soon as he noticed me, he looked away. The whole time that I was dealing with the front desk, Markarov just stared out of the window, watching the passing cars and stubbing out cigarettes. I didn't disturb him. I wasn't allowed to. The terms of employment at the Institute prohibits any interaction with co-workers outside of the workplace. The United People's Institute of Science is meant to be dedicated to science and nothing else. Apparently fraternization with fellow staff members would distract us from work and hinder the Institute's search for raw knowledge. There's something to be said about loose lips divulging state secrets as well. It makes no difference to me. I have no qualm keeping all of my relationships here professional. I did not travel halfway across the world to make friends. I came here to expand the well of knowledge available to mankind. As I read into this journal, a group of vagrants are shouting beneath my window. I can't entirely comprehend the language that they speak, but it seems that they are arguing over alcohol. For a moment, it seems like the confrontation might turn violent, but soon enough, a state security patrol pulls up. The argument turns a different type of violent. I close my curtains and prepare for bed. Tomorrow was a big day. Tomorrow I will finally see the United People's Institute of Science.
November 6th, 1987. My right eye is swollen and I am slightly inebriated. It has been a long day. Even as I write this, my mind still boggles at what my eyes have witnessed. The breed of science that the Institute holds, the tenor of knowledge that I am expected to explore. It is all simply too much. When I arrived back at Rusalka this evening, I was considerably more distressed. I am not one for drink, but with the state that I was in, I needed one. Gorbachev's dry law has shut down just about any place to procure alcohol legally, but the black market comes brightly advertised in this part of the Soviet Union. The man loitering around the lobby in American sneakers was easy to spot. I bought a nearly full bottle of gin. I've tasted gin before, the Martian guard on the labeling even feels somewhat familiar, but whatever the true contents of this bottle are, they are foreign to me. The mixture is amber in color and burns like homemade slivovitz on the way down. It is certainly not gin. The drink is, however, helping. My mind is dulled, but the Institute's ban on record keeping still occupies my thoughts. The policy against keeping unauthorized diaries seems much more reasonable now. Necessary, even. Yet as I sit here in this cramped, cold room, I cannot imagine going to sleep without at least attempting to make sense of what has happened. I poured myself another cup of that horrid concoction. Perhaps if I just go over the events of the day, the alcohol might guide me to calmness. I woke up to repeating tones of the hotel's alarm. With the location of the institute kept secrets and in the absence of any instructions on how to get to work, I simply shaved, gathered my documentation and made my way down to the lobby. To my luck, I found Markarov and about a dozen other men in lab coats standing around the front door. No one was talking, but they all seemed to be waiting with purpose. For a couple of minutes, the group simply milled around, slowly growing with the groans of the hotel elevator, and then, without any external signal, they started to move outside. I followed. The Rusalka is located in a mess of panel housing, with the prying eyes of the common folk on full display. A research facility, the likes of the Institute, would surely not be located in a populated area. As we silently marched away from the hotel, I was certain that we were walking towards a shuttle that would bring us to the Institute. When we reached the end of the cement housing projects, that certainty diluted itself into hope. Soon enough, those hopes dissipated into acceptance. There was no shuttle. We walked through the woods. For nearly an hour, we walked through the muddy, freezing woods. No one complained. It seemed as if I was the only one bothered by the cold. The visible section of the United People's Institute of Science is unimposing. A simple cement block with a singular entrance. Yet, in an age of air reconnaissance, science facilities cannot afford to be impressive to the naked eye. Every fool knows that true research is done on the ground. Yet I could have never conceived of the actual size of the facility. Before descending into the halls of the Institute, each member of our silent procession had to pass through the guard gate. The man who checked my documentation smiled and welcomed me to my new workplace as if we were soon to become friends. I am certain he is unfamiliar with what is happening beneath his feet. If he was, he would have not been so jovial. The elevator that took us down to the depths of the Institute was the smoothest piece of technology I have ever witnessed. When the doors closed behind us, it took me a moment to even register the motion. The usual strains and groans of metal wire were replaced with a smooth, steady whirring. It was only through the pit of my stomach that I knew we were in freefall, barreling towards buried, forbidden knowledge. 
Throughout my career, I have visited many research facilities. My native Czechoslovakia, Poland, the Union, all the labs look the same. Bare lobbies with tight hallways that connect to cramped rooms. I expected at least a trace of the familiar, yet the institute was unlike any house of science I had ever seen before. It was as if the architect had been inspired less by pragmatism and budget constraints and more by the fear of God. High vaulted ceilings, a tiled floor depicting a cryptic mosaic, a podium which had the makings of an altar. The structure looked more like a cathedral than an office, yet where one would see stained glass windows and images of the crucifixion, there were doors. Hundreds of doors towering high above our heads, with nothing but a skeletal scaffolding of stairs connecting them to the ground. Down that scaffolding came an old man, Dr. Herkel, head of the institute. With a tired voice, he welcomed me to the research facility. As he spoke, he scarcely looked up from his drooping eyeglasses, yet even the slightest acknowledgement of my existence by him suddenly drew the attention of the group of scientists around me. My new colleagues were all looking at me. Dr. Herkel asked if I had any questions. I spoke, perhaps too much at length, about how I was beyond excited to be joined the ranks of the United People's Institute of Science. I assured the crowd of academics that despite my young age, I am fully committed to the pursuit of knowledge and that I am looking forward to working towards mankind's progress with them. This did not sit well with anyone in the group. The question I asked fared even worse. I thought that what I had asked was a completely reasonable question. After all, everyone who stood around me was once new to the Institute. I was not the only one in that giant hall that had traveled in horrid trains with nothing but vague promises of knowledge and strict terms of employment. I simply wanted to see some of the experiments that were being performed in the labs. The question was completely reasonable, yet as soon as I asked it, the crowd grew hostile. It was as if I had uttered some horrible blasphemy, as if I had broken some sacred social norm. From the sneers around me, I feared that someone might strike me. Yet with a single word, Dr. Herkel calmed the crowd. Very well, he said. Now that you are one of us, I suppose it would be proper for you to see what you have gotten yourself into. He called for Dr. Alieva and informed me of the nature of our research. I was to become privy to information regarding an organic compound retrieved from Antarctica in the 1950s. Divulging any of the information to a third party under any circumstances would be punished by torture and death without appeal. I told him I was ready. Most of the crowd of scientists had dissipated and made their way towards their designated labs, but a small group remained. Among them was Dr. Markarov. Incensed by Dr. Herkel's response to my question, he indulged in a sharp, whispered argument. I tried not to pry. I simply turned away from the quarrel and watched my colleagues spread out through the metal scaffolding like worker ants. Markarov's argument bore no fruit. After the quick exchange, he walked away from Dr. Herkel defeated. As we made our way towards the lab, however, Markarov still followed our group at a distance. Leading the climb up the metal staircase was Dr. Alieva herself, a small woman with local features. She shared no pleasantries when introduced. As we made our way through the mesh of scaffolding, I found myself feeling slightly dizzy. Being able to see the full mosaic of the Institute's floor instilled a sense of vertigo in me. Beneath us, a thousand tiles revealed the picture of a serpent biting into an apple. I distinctly recall thinking about how it would take a lot of exposure for me to get used to climb up the stairs. 
soon enough, I found there were considerably more distressing things in the Institute than its high ceilings. The metal door did not connect to Dr. Alieva's laboratory directly. Instead, it led us through a winding path lit by nothing but dim floor lights. No words were spoken as we moved through the tight passage. All that could be heard was our footsteps and my labored breathing. My lungs were strained by the climb up the scaffolding, but the pressure of the impending revelation of the Institute's research weighed on me even more. I anticipated fascination with the forbidden findings, surprise even. What I did not expect was soul-shattering fear. Dr. Alieva's lab once again exceeded all architectural expectations from previous scientific institutions. Her office was massive. Every conceivable piece of equipment a biologist could ask for was on full display. Centrifuges, incubators, a computer that dwarfed even the biggest calculating machines I'd ever seen. Yet all of the advanced technology seemed to be pushed to the edges of the lab in lieu of something much simpler. In the center of the room, there was an aquarium with a little plastic island surrounded by murky water. Next to it was a film projector. As soon as we entered the laboratory, Dr. Alieva made her way to a set of cages at the far end of the room and emerged with a pale white mouse. She held the creature dispassionately by the neck and carried it to the aquarium. The animal did not resist. It just hung from her long fingers, limply awaiting its fate. When Dr. Alieva removed the lid of the fish tank, a horrid smell spread through the room like a sickness. I immediately recognized the odor. Even though the homeless did not officially exist within the Union sphere of influence, I had spent much of my younger years tending to her wounds. The mess of corroded flesh that hid beneath their crusted bandages, the overpowering stench of life gone awry, that familiar malodor of infection filled the laboratory completely. It was only once my head was spinning with confusion and nausea that Dr. Alieva looked at me. Her dark eyes probed my character, searching for trustworthiness. Her face gave no indication of her findings. She simply proceeded to illustrate the nature of her research. As soon as the mouse fell into the liquid, it ceased to be docile. The moment the animal's body landed in the water, it yelped and clambered up on the little plastic island in the center of the aquarium. The mouse desperately licked its paws, trying to clean off whatever foreign substance it had been dunked into. But the animal's tongue did little to stop the horror that awaited it. As discomforting as the pus-riddled stench was, I found myself taking steps closer to the aquarium. I knew what I saw. I was certain of what I saw, but my mind refused to make peace with reality. The animal's white fur squirmed with activity, when in moments the alien life transgressed the limits of the creature's body. Worms. Small white worms with beady black eyes slithered from beneath the animal's fur. At first, the strands of pale life only rose from the parts of the mouse that had made contact with the water, but the infestation quickly spread. The snout, the eyes, the tongue, Soon enough, the mouse became a host to an incomprehensible parasite. The animal on the plastic island soon ceased to exist. Where once stood a panicked mouse, now only sat a quivering mess of shivering white filaments. They kept on stretching, striving to get further away from their host. In one long horrid motion, the writhing mess of life pulled itself towards the edge of the island and disappeared in the filthy water. Before I had a chance to make peace with what I had seen, Alieva was dropping a second mouse to its death. This time, however, as the animal impotently tried to lick away the damage, Alieva did not watch. Instead, she turned on the film projector. By the time the machine crackled to life, the mouse's body had been rendered unrecognizable by the slivering worms. 
The mouse was going to meet the same fate as its predecessor. I was certain of it. Yet as soon as the projector beamed this image on the wall, the white strands of the parasite stopped moving. They retreated back into the animal's fur. All that remained of the foreign worms were the beady black eyes. They stared at the wall from the creature's body, silently watching the projected image as the mouse heaved in panic. A puppy. Projected on the wall was a photograph of a puppy. Big floppy ears, eyes that could melt a heart, tiny paws with gentle spots. The picture of the animal seemed to belong to a different world. The moment Alieva turned off the projector, the worms resumed their work. Soon enough, the mouse's corrupted body disappeared in the murky water of the aquarium. When the shock wore off, I asked questions. I asked a lot of questions. I needed to know the precautions that were being taken to keep the parasite out of the water supply. I needed to know what other stimuli were tested to calm the worms. There was a thousand other things swirling through my head, but most of all, I needed to know that the insane process I had witnessed was understood and could be controlled. No assurances or information came. Dr. Arlieva did not respond to any of my questions. Her and Dr. Herkel just silently watched me as I begged for answers. Markarov was quiet at first as well. But that did not last. As I demanded information about the other samples for the parasite, Markarov punched me. My eye is bloated now. It was a nasty hit. But in the moments, I just felt faint. The shock of witnessing the parasite and of being assaulted in a scientific setting was too much for me. Markarov lifted me up by my lab coat and screamed in my face. I was asking too many questions. This was not the job for me. My kind would ruin the Institute. I scarcely understood what he was saying. All that I could properly register was the cigarettes and stale coffee on his breath and the fact that he was shaking me. Dr. Herkel stepped in. Eventually. He ordered Dr. Alieva to bring me a glass of water and help me get off the floor. As dazed as I was, I still found myself closely examining the contents of the glass before I drank it. Herkel helped me out of the laboratory. As we walked through the dark hallways back to the cathedral of the Institute, I tried speaking to him, but he told me to wait. He said that lengthy conversations in the hallway are improper. We walked down the scaffolding and took a seat near the podium. As we sat down, another crowd of scientists marched out of the elevator. They flowed through the scaffolding, each approaching their own metal door. It was only once each of those doors closed that Herkel spoke. He explained, with discomforting calmness, the nature of my job. Dr. Aliyeva's research is relatively harmless compared to the other scientific inquiries being undertaken in the Institute. I am not to bother myself with anyone else's work. Each researcher at the Institute is assigned an artifact of study and their attention is expected to be undivided. After today's introduction to the facilities, I will be assigned an area of study and from that point onwards, I am expected to make it my life's priority to understand the artifact assigned to me. He spoke of a need for secrecy, not just from the public, but also from governmental channels. Much of the findings in the Institute are of a heavily destructive nature. If the military men were to get their hands on even a fraction of the technology, humanity would wither away within a decade. I was to simply understand my given object of study and collect whatever information I could. That was my job, nothing else. He also gave me his condolences. The job that I had been summoned for would not be easy, and the life that I had ahead of me would not be pleasant.
He said that if it were within his power, he would offer me a chance to travel back home, but it wasn't. He briefly described what would happen to me if I left the institute, and then he left me to sit alone. Once Herkel climbed up the scaffolding and shut his door, the giant hall fell into complete silence. I sat there with nothing but my breath to keep me company. Occasionally, when my mind grew too panicked, I would start counting the tiles of the mosaic. I never made it past twenty. A couple hours later, a cascade of doors opening yanked me out of my doom-filled thoughts. The colleagues that I had entered the hall with were making their way towards the elevator. I followed them. My first breath of fresh air felt like water on a parched throat, but soon enough the cold set in. Shivering and cursing the freezing air coursing through my lungs, I marched my way through the forest with my colleagues. When I came home, I purchased this lovely bottle of gin. I fear what tomorrow will bring. Tomorrow I will be assigned an area of study and my mind struggles to prepare. Most of me is terrified, that is without a doubt, yet this might be the gin. A part of me is excited. I am a scientist. I spent years transcribing the mysteries of nature into legible research. My placement in the institute is not an accident. I was summoned because of the strength of mind that I possess. Tomorrow I shall be faced with a challenge and I will meet it head on. A dark well of knowledge will be presented to me and regardless of how harrowing its depths are, I will prevail. I will prevail through the raw force of my intellect. I fear the jinn has given me false confidence, yet now I feel as if I might actually get some sleep. I will have one more glass of this poison and then go rest. Tomorrow will be a difficult day. The Cabinet of Fever Dreams is written and produced by Mike Jesus Langer and is brought to you by patrons such as Moo, Serafina L, Lucky J. Horton, Alan Rawl, Kus, Bob Condor, Chicken Mixer, Daniel Wengel, and Mr. Creepy Pasta. If you'd like to join these fine people and support the show and get early access to episodes along with a bunch of bonus content, drop by patreon.com slash Langer. That's all for tonight, comrade. See you here next episode for the second chapter of Journals from the Institute. Glory to the labor.